So if you've got uh, the insert in your bulletin, I'm going to project the, uh, the passages because we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. If you're a Bible flipper, if you, if you don't mind kind of jumping back and forth to various passages, by all means do that. I, I am a bit of a, I don't know if Bible flipper is the right word. It sounds like a show about a dolphin, but... Um, uh, but if you want to see the, the passages in context, that's excellent. I just didn't want anybody to feel obligated to do that. Also, the purpose of the insert in the bulletin is so that you can look over those passages later. Okay, there's, there's a lot to be said about each of these passages. And I think I'm kind of swinging in the fundamentalist direction in terms of Scripture is really what has the power to transform us. Uh, stories, jokes, anecdotes, those are all great but I believe that God is active through his spirit and through his word. So the more that we uh, align ourselves uh, with scripture, the more apt we are to grow. So I put all of that before you for your consideration um, to, uh, to look at it as, as you feel the need. So just to briefly recap last week, we started a, a quick series looking at what I'm calling responsible speech, uh, how we use our words. So what happens when we become followers of Jesus is we enter into relationship with God, okay? We confess our sin, we confess our unworthiness, and we fall on his grace as the only thing that has the means to save us. Now, the New Testament refers to this as justification. So if you want to score some points for a big theological word, that's what the New Testament describes it as. We are justified before God when we choose to accept his gift to us. And at the moment that we plead for God's forgiveness, we call out to Christ for salvation. We are signed, sealed, and delivered. That's it. There is nothing that we can do to add to that. There's nothing that we bring to the table that makes it so that God is blessed to have us on his team. Uh, We bring nothing to it except the need. And Romans 8 says pretty clearly uh, that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is a crystal clear statement from the New Testament. None of us brought anything to the deal. Okay, it's all God's grace. And at that moment, we are signed, sealed, and delivered. There's nothing we can do to add to it. Now, while we're forgiven, we have right standing before God, we might also recognize that we're not yet all that we could be or all that we should be. Now, I don't know if I'm just projecting my experience onto everybody else, but old habits still hang on. Sinful attitudes remain. Dark inclinations are still something that we need to wrestle with. Now, if that's not your experience, uh, I'd I'd love to sit down and have you counsel me, but I think that all of us could attest to the fact that while we made that decision for Christ, while we accepted his gift by faith, we still found that there was still something dark clinging to us. Now, the process that God uses to walk us through this pattern is what we call sanctification. So you're two for two on your big, fancy theological terms. We are justified. We are signed, sealed, delivered. But at the same time, the New Testament's written through this lens of 
Yeah, but God still wants to transform you. There's nothing you can do to add to salvation, but at the same time, God doesn't expect you to sit around and do nothing waiting for the end of the world. And that's how the New Testament is largely uh, written. So Paul, for example, when he writes to the Corinthians, the Corinthians are Christians. He's writing to a community of believers in the city of Corinth. You can go find it on a map. You can read all about it. He's writing to a set of believers who are signed, sealed, and delivered but at the same time, they're a mess. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you think, how in the world could there be so much dysfunction in a Christian church? So what's lacking there is the necessary, the necessary outworking of that justification. So God justifies you, and then the operation begins. God is looking to transform us. He's looking to renew our hearts, renew our minds. The Corinthians, like us, they're not all that they should be, and the gospel serves as the basis for calling them to a richer experience of life. To be more human than they have ever been at any point in their experience. To reflect the very character of God. That's what we're called to in Christ. And I want to press this a little bit because I want to get away from the idea that it's just a, an idea that we need to do better. Um, for those of us who have tried, it doesn't really seem like it's possible. But at the same time, God doesn't seem to be too inclined to having us continually making excuses for the same thing year after year. So when I'm talking about this, I don't want you to hear it as a word of judgment or a word of confrontation. You may take it that way, but this is how the Bible describes God coming after us in these ways. And in every way, I think that when we become believers, there's not a single area of my life that is not submitted to the Lordship of Christ or shouldn't be. I don't get to say, okay, God, I'll give you uh, my marriage and my finances, but the rest of it's me. Okay, you can't touch any of this stuff over here. You don't get to do that as a follower of Jesus. So my framework is that the gospel is gradually expanding more and more over every single area of my life, which means there's no area that's off limits for God. When God chooses to correct me through another person or through his word, that's something that I need uh, to be open to listening to. So when we talk about our words over these weeks, it's not just a matter of doing better. Like this is an area of our life where God wants to submit us to his lordship, like everything else. And maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe you're more thinking of finances or you're thinking of thought patterns or what you watch or how you spend your time, any of that stuff. It's all good. It's all basically the same thing. I'm just looking at some specific passages here that talk about how we use our words. And I want to state from the beginning, because there's going to be a couple times where I'm not mocking anybody, myself included. We've all done embarrassing things, I hope, or at least I believe that everybody here at one point in their life could flash back to the time that, you know, you dropped the tray in the cafeteria and everybody went, ooh. Like you, we've all had those kinds of moments. So I'm not poking fun at anybody. I'm not mocking anybody. But if we can't laugh at ourselves for the mistakes that we made, there's really no hope for us, right? That's what grace is. We bring all of our mistakes and who we are before God, and God forgives us in spite of these things. So 
I just want to make sure that we're, we're all hearing this uh, the correct way. I'm not mocking anybody. There's some sensitive souls here I know that might think that he's teasing me. I'm really not. Like, we've all done it. I remember sitting, I was a camp counselor at Pattersonville. I had been a Christian for six months. I had been a devoted Christian for about a week. And I remember calling out in a Bible study, like, yeah, that's in Philemon 316 or whatever it was. And then there was somebody sitting next to me, like probably a camper, like a seven-year-old said, it's not Philemon, it's Philippians, because it was the short version. Like, oh, yeah. And of course, I yelled it out in front of the whole camp like a buffoon. We've all had moments like that where we've said things that were like, oh, you wish you could hook the word and, and then bring it back so you didn't say something so foolish. So I'm not mocking anybody, but I want to look at how we use our words in two specific ways. I want to look at our speech before God. I want to look at how we talk to God, and I want to look at how we talk about God. So I'm titling this whole series, Responsible Speech, that God cares very much what we say to him, and he cares very much what we say about him, and he wants us to exercise responsible speech. So to piggyback on last week, where my point was, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are a reflection of the condition of your heart. Words are never just words. You don't ever get to say, well, I have no idea where that came from. The Bible is crystal clear. Jesus in Matthew 12, 34. It's easy to remember. One, two, three, four. You just have to remember that it's Matthew. Uh, Matthew 12, 34 says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words are never just words. And in the same way, when we talk to God or when we talk about God, we reveal what we actually believe about him. And my contention is that God cares very much about this and he wants us to exercise responsible speech. So when we talk about prayer, you can picture a scenario where parents are sitting at the table and you're praying before a meal and the kids, maybe, none of my kids are in here so I can say this, maybe the kids have had an off day, right? Maybe everybody's a little bit wild and mom or dad is praying fervently and you wonder, like if I were a kid, I'd be wondering, is mom talking to God or is mom talking to me? Like, you know, the prayer, like, dear Lord, please help these children to obey their parents because we know that when you obey your parents, that you are blessed of the Lord. Like you sit there and you wonder like, is she telling God that? Or is she (laughs) mom yelling at us uh, through prayer? Now, for equal time, uh, just to, to kind of yell at the guild a little bit, pastors are the same way, right? And it wasn't until the onset of children that I started to, you know, be aware of the fact that, uh, like, okay, so we're, we're bowing our heads to pray, uh, and we're all pious, but somehow, uh, as the prayer goes on, Caleb snuck bottle rockets into the church, and Stephen is pulling out his slingshot, and Isaac is taking his shirt off. I hope that the prayer ends soon so that my troops don't devolve, right? Now, for those of you that, that was what we call a joke. Caleb, to my knowledge, has never brought bottle rockets into the church. Stephen does have a slingshot, which could actually kill somebody, which is why I've taken it away from him. Stephen has really awesome uncles. They don't bring these things to church. A lot of them they're not allowed to use without careful adult supervision. And by that, I mean Cynthia. So, uh, but you can imagine the scenario, and you're wondering, like, okay, 
I know we're praying here, uh, but Mita's the only one who's got her eyes closed, and I'm just trying to keep the troops in place. And then, like, you know, 19 minutes later, you're, you're wondering if, if that's going on. Um, or, you know, there's a lot of different scenarios, and I'm not poking fun at anybody. We've all done it. I wonder sometimes when I'm listening to people pray, like, did you just tell God what Lamentations 3 said? Because I'm pretty sure that, that he wrote it. So did you understand what I'm saying? That when we say things in prayer, we have to wonder sometimes, are you actually talking to God, or are you inadvertently spiritually yelling at the people around you uh, through, through your prayer? So we're going to look at a couple of these things, and I don't want anybody to feel like they can't say anything or that they can't pray, because I've actually been really impressed by the number of you that volunteer to pray publicly, because it's an intimidating thing, right? You're worried that you're going to say the wrong thing, and you know, your siblings are sitting there and they're going to bust your chops about it later. Uh, but you're actually boldly going to the Lord in prayer. So that's an awesome thing and we want to affirm that. So we want to keep both going at the same time where, you know, uh, we've kind of made some mistakes. We can chuckle at ourselves. Um, but this is an area where God really wants to, to get control of us. So speech to God and speech about God. Let's start with the verses that basically sum up my whole theology of prayer. Uh, and the writer Ecclesiastes says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So what is this saying about prayer? Do not be impulsive in thought uh, or hasty in your words before God. I think what this is saying is, don't say much. And why? Because God doesn't want us praying. I can picture the person who doesn't really feel any compelling need to pray. Is this because God doesn't want us to pray? No. It's because God's perspective is absolute. So I think what this is calling us to is to not be presumptive in the way that we pray. Don't speak to God as though you were in heaven and he was on the earth. So I think it should foster an attitude of humility, recognizing at the very least that we don't share God's perspective on the universe, right? We have to come to him humbly. Uh, we have to come to him without presumption, without pretense. We need to come to him not telling him what he needs to do. I've been in the room when that happens where uh, I was, again, a, a counselor at Pattersonville and somebody praying, you know, God, you need strong people following you. I'm pretty sure that somebody just told God that he needs something. Now, I, we have all done things like that. I'm, it's not a critique. It's just an invitation to take care in what we say, not to be glib or to be flippant in the way that we pray, uh, but to take it as a matter of, of profound seriousness. And it's not fear of God. Like, we don't avoid God here because we're scared of him. Uh, it's just a healthy reverence and a humble acknowledgement that God is exalted above all things. He is in heaven. We are on the earth. So our words should be few. Fast forward a bit to Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So similarly, when we pray, 
We shouldn't do it to seek the attention of other people. Now, there are people who love to display. There are people who love to be seen as spiritual and holy. Um, And that, to me, is what Jesus is talking about here. It's not to say that we don't all have that inclination to want to be seen by people, but we need to carefully check our motivation for, I think, any words that we use. Are the words that I'm about to speak necessary? Uh, Are the words that I'm about to speak born of humility, born of a godly desire to see God's purposes come in the world? Or am I just trying to display before other people? It's something we constantly need to check in terms of our motivation. And what Jesus is saying here is that you've received your reward in full. You wanted to be seen by people, you did it to be seen by people, and you were seen by people. Like, and I don't mean to be too sarcastic, but that's actually, I think we could inject a little bit of that into what Jesus is saying. You've, you have your reward in full. You wanted to impress people by your long-winded prayer, and that is what you did. But God's not blessing that, I think is what he's saying. You wanted to talk about your generous financial gift. Awesome. You wanted to do that in order to be seen by people. And you were seen by people. And maybe they think that you're really spiritual. You have received your reward in full. I can't see my way around. I I just don't see another way to take it. You wanted to be seen by people. You were seen by people. Awesome. You've got your reward in full, which means that you're not anticipating anything later. You've got your reward in full. When Jesus talks about this, he's actually saying to do these things secretly. Now, I know that when we come together as a congregation, we can't pray secretly. Like, everybody just be silent, and then we'll never know who's praying. It'd be like silent reading time at school. Uh, There are times where we need to declare that to the Lord. Um, But what I think Jesus is saying here at a minimum is, we really need to check our motivation. We really need to check our hearts before we use uh, those words. Looking at Luke's gospel, at the beginning of what we call the Lord's Prayer, And it says, And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Now this is one of the spots where the disciples are coming from a good place. They are humbly asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. They recognize that they're not All that they could be, they recognize that John's disciples uh, were taught to pray by John, and they also want to be taught to pray. If you've ever read Luke's gospel, or if you've ever surveyed it, sometimes it's called the gospel of the kneeling Christ, because at every turn, Jesus is withdrawing to solitary places to pray. He's, uh, you know, getting away from the disciples, getting away from the crowds, taking time to commune with the Father. And look at how he prays. How does he start? Father, hallowed be thy name. What does the word hallowed mean? We're on a massive big word. Holy. So what kind of attitude does that show on Jesus' part if we start our prayer that way? You're starting with reverence. Yeah, if you go back to the Ecclesiastes reference. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. 
Your name is honored. And you're praying, thy kingdom come. You, you notice that you're starting from a place of focusing on who God is, not on what we need. And I think, I've been selective about these passages. I think if you were to read the Bible, you'll see this at work through the whole thing. I was just reading Nehemiah this week. And at the beginning, the people pray, Nehemiah prays. And their prayer is focused on a couple things. One, it's confession of sin. They're confessing sin before the Lord. They're just coming back from exile where they've been punished for their idolatry, their economic injustice. God's just done with them. He sends them off uh, into exile and they come back. And their prayer is a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of begging God to remember his covenant with Abraham, to remember that he is the deliverer, that he is faithful to his covenant. You notice the difference between that and the Nehemiah Uh, Like the perceived prayer should be, God, help us to rebuild, help us. And then it's, it's just all about us. So I think what Jesus is modeling here is the exact opposite of that. You start with prayer focused on who God is. And that, I believe, helps you to zero in on who you are and, in fact, how you should pray. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not, God, fix all of my circumstances. I don't care about my neighbor. (laughs) I don't care about God's purposes for them, right? And we tend to be singularly focused there when God's perspective is is far bigger. So I just think that we should be a little bit less, a little bit less hasty, perhaps, in the way that we pray. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, you're not describing me at all. Like, I'm on board with all that. I get it. Then that's awesome. Then this should be nothing more than an encouraging word for you, right? I'm not just trying to tee off on people. I'm just trying to point out what Scripture says. It's open to your reflection to see, boy, is that really the heart of my prayer, that I'm focused on the holiness, the majesty of God, and I'm humbly asking that his kingdom come? Is there humility? Is there reverence in my prayer? Or am I kind of kicking the door open and telling God what I want? That's up to you to decide. I don't have a window into your heart. I don't know what's going on. You, you're the one who has to reflect on that. So we have another passage from Luke. So this, this right here, the humility, the reverence, the awe, is kind of a contrast to what happens a little bit later when Jesus tells this parable. And I'm not going to stop too much because it's a self-explanatory. This was actually, we read this with the kids, and this is where um, I prayed, and I think it was Stephen said, well, that wasn't much of a prayer. So like, (laughs) to me, like, oh, wow, I just... I just got dissed um, by my then, like, four-year-old. Like, that wasn't much of a prayer. You need to, you know. All right, Dad, you know what? Try again. You should spruce it up a little bit, throw a little bit of the King James English in there. Uh, you know, make it, make it happen. And this is actually a good corrective of that. He also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. (laughs) Did you get that? Who is he praying to? Yeah, okay, that's funny. I, I think that's funny. It passes for a joke in my neighborhood. He's praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. Wow. 
What would it be like if Greg Tack stood up right now to pray and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like Dale. <laughs> As he points at her. Like, this is a pretty bold thing to have happen. I'm not even like this person right here. That might hurt your self-esteem a little bit. Um, but that's kind of what happens here. And then he goes on to give his credentials because he's so spiritual. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's telling God how spiritual and how wonderful he is and how much better he is than the person sitting next to him. He's holding that person in contempt. The tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And knowing what you know about Jesus' ministry, who went home justified before God? The tax collector did. Now, it's ironic that through the Gospels, it's the religious holy people that don't get it. But this person here, in reverence and humility, they stand at a distance, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Not telling God what he needs to do, but begging for God's mercy. He gives a very unpoetic uh, plea for mercy, but he's the one who goes home justified before God. Now, we need to be careful here, because I've been a part of uh, Bible studies and Sunday school lessons where this passage is taught, and then the immediate prayer is, God, we thank you that we're not like that Pharisee. Notice the subtlety of what happens there. How quickly did the sin-forgiven tax collector turn into the Pharisee? God, we thank you that we're not like that presumptuous Pharisee. Like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I think you just did the same thing, right? And again, it's not to mock or to make fun, but we need to recognize how quickly we can turn, how quickly our self-righteousness can take over our humility. So all that to say that responsible speech to God means that we don't approach God in haste. We approach him with an attitude of reverence, with humility, and it's up to each of us to consider how much our prayer life reflects what I've just described and to test it out, right? I'm not up here because I'm handpicking some verses that, that meet my needs. Um, I think that this is a summary of what the Bible describes overall, and fellowship is going to happen when you go back into whatever Bible reading you're doing. I was in Nehemiah this week. There's all kinds of different places where you could test this out. Read Paul's letters and tell me if you see this at work or not. Go ahead and read the Psalms. Read Proverbs. Read the prophets. Read whatever. And you test this out to see if this is actually the case. Is this the kind of prayer that God desires. And the more you see it, the more then you have to say, okay, does my own heart align with this? Am I responsible in my speech to God? Moving on now, I want to look at how we talk about God. So 1 Timothy 4.16, if I can, there we go. It says to pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, many of you know that Timothy is Paul's protege, and he's telling him to watch his life and his teaching carefully. 
This teaching is uh, translated doctrine in other places. So he's saying that Timothy and all of us should carefully uh, consider what they believe about God and the link between one's life and one's doctrine. Okay? And why? It says it right there. To ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, Timothy's a minister. Uh, I understand that. He's held to a higher standard in terms of what he says. But I think that the principle is still the same. Uh, We're all to watch our lives and our doctrine closely. We should be accountable to others uh, for what we say about God and for how we live our lives. That's what community is. Now, we tend to try to avoid that and think in individual terms, but I don't think that that's really a healthy spiritual paradigm. If you're not regularly accountable to people for what you say about God, I think that you're in a dangerous place, or at least beginning to be in a dangerous place. So you have to forgive me for a minute for the fundamentalist swing uh, in, in my, my thinking, we have to be accountable to each other and we have to be accountable to scripture. It doesn't matter what anybody says. I don't care what church you're in. I don't care who you're in fellowship with. If it doesn't line up with the text, it's not safe. We can tell fun stories. We can come up with all kinds of illustrations about why we believe what we believe. What matters is what the text actually says. Now, the deacons have been doing this for a little while, um, and the youth group did it for a bit as well. We printed off different doctrines from the Southern Baptist Convention, and they give a whole lot of passages, uh, and that's really excellent. Not commentary on the passages. They have a doctrinal statement, and then there are 15 to 20 verses that defend that doctrine. So we spent some time with the deacons and in the youth group as well, looking up those passages to see if they actually say what the statement says. Some of it lines up perfectly. Some of it you think, wow, they believe that about God, but none of these references defend that. So you have to ask yourself the question, where does my belief come from? And it's a very serious thing. Here, Paul closely connects your life and your doctrine. So theology is not just this thing in the ivory tower that brainiacs and nerds sit around and talk about. There is a connection here between your life and what you believe. And very similarly in 2 Timothy, it says, well, we read last week the passage that all scripture is God-breathed and uh, you will want people can fill in the rest. The time will come, this follows immediately after. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So Paul here is telling Timothy that there's going to come a day when they will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. Now, who's they? For us, usually it's the other guy. Usually it's that church down the street. (laughs) Not us, right? So when Paul wrote this, I think that it's a very clear warning. It doesn't matter where you are. Nobody is exempt. Nobody is immune. The time will come when people just won't tolerate it anymore. They will gather around themselves gurus. They will gather around themselves people who aren't going to confront their sin. It's not sin. It's just kind of a mishap. Oops. And because, and just to get practical here for a minute, you have a whole generation of ministers, um, I'll I'll try to be careful here, graduating from seminary with massive amounts of debt. 
I think that that is going to be the thing for my generation. Massive amounts of debt. Now, when you have massive amounts of debt, what does that mean? It means you need a job to pay it off. And when you're trained to minister in the church, what job are you going to get? Right, okay, you're going to get ministry. It wasn't a trick question. I cannot bring my knowledge of Koine Greek and Biblical Hebrew over to Quirk Auto Parts. Yeah, aren't I impressive? Look at this. I can exegete a passage of the New Testament for you. I don't think that that's really going to land me a job with them. So what's going to happen is they need a job in the church. Now, they need that job. What's going to happen? Boy, I hope that God's Spirit just overpowers them. And I'm saying this sincerely and from the heart, and I'm not criticizing anybody. I ache for the position that they're in. They are submitting themselves to God's people. Meaning, if they confront sin, there's the risk that you're taking your giving and you're going elsewhere. And I'm going to be honest with you, because we have these conversations in classrooms at seminary. The church can be a fickle bunch. I'm going to take my money, because that's how it always comes about in, in church business meetings. All of a sudden, it's my money, so I want to know how it's being spent. Or if I don't like what the pastor said, then I'm going to start to criticize, or I'm going to leave. And the temptation to follow this, or the temptation not to follow this, is very real for people. You need to be praying for seminaries because that's the next generation of our pastors. You need to be praying for them, that they'll commit themselves to the truth, that God's spirit will overwhelm them because the temptation is real. It's their job. Anyway, I'll stop. But we always think about they as somebody else when I think that it might perhaps be a little bit closer to home. Now, this is an opportunity for us to speak the truth in love. This is an opportunity for us to be the best chance that somebody has to hear the truth. And so many walk with false ideas about who God is, right? Think about it at work. How many false ideas about God do you encounter day by day? Do we want to be like this, or do we want to be like people who are going to engage uh, in sound doctrine? Next, when you get to the end of the book of Job... Uh, a cheery book to be sure. What's the criticism? And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now for those of you who have read the book of Job, you might actually read the friend's advice and you think, well, it's actually kind of biblical. There's cross-references to Psalms. There's cross-references to Proverbs. What they say is not actually wrong. But in those circumstances, it is. They don't know. They don't have God's perspective on what's happening to Job. So when they're criticized, they haven't spoken about God what is right. They haven't spoken truly uh, about the Lord. So in the midst of pe people's uh, personal circumstances, we're responsible for what we say about God. Could God be judging a person through the difficulty of their personal circumstances? Sure. Could he not be judging them through? Right. You have to be discerning. You have to be wise in how you use those words. So we want to be careful about how we speak to people in the midst of their personal circumstances. Finally, last passage. I put Isaiah 58, that's for your own amusement later. 
Um, Colossians 4, 5, and 6, to conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. So finally, Paul has a word to say about how we speak to outsiders, to those outside the Christian faith. He urges believers to be wise and to make the most of every opportunity, to let their speech be as though it was seasoned with salt, um, so that they might know how to respond to each person, to be discerning in their words, to speak what is true about God. So that's the function of our words, that in our prayer, in our declarations about God, we might be wise and discerning in how we speak for the ultimate glory of God and for the benefit of his people. Now, I'd like to close with this. Um, I was listening to a sermon this past week about love. Um, and the pastor was saying that you might be someone's best chance at love. Now, I think, I, lo- I love that phrase, someone's best chance, that for today, you might be someone's best chance at encouragement. You might be somebody's best chance at correction. You might be tomorrow when you go into your workplace, the best chance that somebody has to hear something that's true about God. So will we use those opportunities, and not just use those opportunities, but to prepare for them, right? We're in summer, we're vacationing to all these exotic places, and we're coming back in September in Awana, and youth group, and Sunday school, SBS, that stuff all starts back up. Are we going to train ourselves to be prepared for those moments where we could minister the truth to other people, where we could speak appropriately about God in a way that exalts him and a way that brings um, truth to people. Finally, I'm going to close with this quote from Gordon Fee, uh, a New Testament professor. It's almost of a bygone era. Uh, Gordon was a wonderful, wonderful, godly man, um, is actually suffering from Alzheimer's right now, uh, which is um, sad. But he, he was one who his life and his doctrine were just, they were one thing. He was this passionate, zealous New Testament professor. He was charismatic uh, by denominational background, but was just such a thorough uh, scholar of the Bible. And he said, let me listen to you pray and sing, and I can write your theology. And what he means by that is, let me listen to how you pray. Let me listen to how you talk to God. And let me listen to how you sing about God. And I can tell you what you believe about him. So for further reflection, it's on the insert in the bulletin. Spend some time meditating on that quote. Do you believe that that's actually true? To let me listen to you pray and speak and I can write your theology? Um, And then how much of your spirituality reflects the truth of scripture? It's a good question for all of us. And the last question on there that I'll press a little bit is, are you part of a group where you're regularly accountable for what you say about God? where we come together and we train each other and it's iron sharpening iron and you're part of a group or you're leading a group where you're accountable to other people for how you speak the truth about God. Our culture needs it. Our city needs it. Our world needs it. None of us is winsome enough. None of us is articulate or attractive enough. It is going to take uh, the truth of God and the empowering of God's spirit to make that happen. What we can do through communion with God and through fellowship with each other, is we can be prepared for those moments to speak truly to God and speak truly about God. Let's pray.
God, we are grateful 